in this gospel series, we continue with the story of Jesus in his hometown congregation in Nazareth. He's been baptized. He's been preaching in Capernaum. He's already renowned as a teacher, a healer, miracle worker. And now he comes home. It is the Sabbath day and Jesus goes to synagogue as was his custom. The scroll of Isaiah is handed to him. He unrolls the scroll and he finds where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Lord, capital, all letters, L-O-R-D, all caps, um, traditionally refers to Yahweh, the personal revealed name of God. So in a sense, Jesus is reading, the spirit of Yahweh, of Yahweh is upon me. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, set the captives free, bind the brokenhearted, liberate the oppressed. This is the year of divine favor. As Jesus sits down, the congregation speaks well of him. They make note of his parents. That's Joseph's son. Some of them surely were there almost 30 years ago at the attempted stoning of Mary, his mother. They all surely heard of Jesus' scandalous birth. This is the congregation where Jesus was raised. They know him in a way like no other. And Jesus, in turn, knows them like no other. Jesus responds to their lip service by revealing their hearts. He says, doubtless you will say to me, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in other places. The congregation is becoming deeply disturbed. Jesus' deep and difficult truth makes point of two stories. Last week, we explored the Elijah story, where earthly kings command armies to perpetuate violence, while God commands ravens and a widow to feed and sustain the prophet. In the Elijah story, God uses that which is cast off for divine purposes. Ravens, a widow, climate refugees, to bring about fullness and new community. Might some from this Nazareth congregation come to eventually see themselves as the cast off, oppressed, and discarded that God will use for their redemptive and liberating purpose? Perhaps. But this day, without time to process, the congregation transforms into a murderous mob incited by Jesus' strong words. And it is the story of Elisha that pushes the congregation over the veritable edge. 
the Elisha story is a story to be explored for our, our time as we live under the weight of the understanding that Russia has declared war on Ukraine as we wrestle with this reality. Might God's spirit speak to us even through the story of a leprous general. My initial gut inclination is to make my own declaration that all generals and warmongers, police and prison and ICE detention center officials are in a sense as leprous as Naaman and just like him need to enter the baptismal waters and be made new. But that's a gut inclination and life is more dynamic than broad generalizations. Each human life and human cultures are nuanced, subtle, adaptive, and able to integrate new ideas into a new shared reality. So where do we begin to explore the gift of shifting into newness, to leaning into possibility, and to access hope as a resource? To start, it's important to name. In this story, Naaman is problematic. He is a sold-out nationalist, a polarizing bigot, a slaveholder, and a man of war. His leprosy drives the narrative of the story. In those days, leprosy was the umbrella term for really any type of skin disease. And Naaman needs physical healing. Naaman learns about a prophet from his wife who learned about the prophet from her Hebrew slave, a young girl, who says that the Hebrew prophet Elisha can cure even leprosy. We don't know the Hebrew girl's name. We don't know if she is freed after Naaman is healed. We don't know much of anything. Yet we do get a glimpse of her deep faith in the God who heals, in the God who restores. So Naaman is given a note from his king to deliver to the Israelite king. He also brings along servants and soldiers and chariots and loads of silver and gold and garments. And the Israelite king feels that this is an act of aggression from Syria. He tears his clothes and he cries out. And somehow Elisha hears and sends a very simple note. It reads, let him come to me. Naaman arrives at Elisha's house with horses and chariots and soldiers. Naaman is ready to pay out all of his silver and gold. He's willing to climb the highest mountain or perform the most daring feat to become clean from his leprosy. 
But Elisha merely says, take a bath. In fact, take seven baths, and you don't even need to go that far. Go into the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times. And at this, Naaman's nationalism comes to the forefront. Maybe because he's tired from running around with all that baggage, gold and silver and garments and people. Maybe his leprosy is acting up. Maybe he feels like a fool for following the slave girl's advice. And he responds, there are greater rivers in Damascus, the likes of which all of Israel's waterways do not compare. I should wash in those glorious waters. His nationalism does not allow for other narratives. And the narrative of the Jordan is already deep. It's the river through which the Hebrew people walk to enter the promised land. And it is the river in which Jesus will be baptized. Nay, man's servants commend him. Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean. So Naaman went down, immersed himself in the Jordan, and he was clean. Naaman returns to the prophet and says, now I know there's no God except the one true God. I will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God except Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. But there's one stipulation. He says, but may God pardon me when I bow down in the house of Rimon. God knows the heart. And our actions too often, perhaps too routinely, betray our hearts. Naaman is changed. Not only is he healed in body, he's been changed in unsuspecting ways. The God of a people and nation that Naaman once perceived as inferior has now become his people. And even though his body will still bow to Rimon, the God of his nation, his heart only bows to the Holy One of Israel. Abolitionists and anti-violent peace builders might decry, name and subtle shift and continued obeisance to national idols. Yet followers of Jesus walk another way, sometimes called the third way. We shift beyond the either or paradigm and see imagination, community, and hope as deep resources. What is God's motive to heal a leprous general of an occupying power? Perhaps if we shift our lens, if we shift out from the one who is speaking the most and seems to wield the most power, that is Naaman, we might see 
through whom and what God is actually working. A slave girl, servants who whisper, but if you only do this, it will be so much easier. A humiliated king of a vassal state, Naaman sickness. As Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris recently posted on the gram, as the war unfolds with Russia's attack on Ukraine, we know that this has huge ramifications for the entire world, but especially the poor. As always is the case with war and violence, poor and low-income people lose the most. Let us not look to those who perceive themselves as powerful. Let's not look to warmongers and those caught up in violence and domination systems for wisdom and guidance. Let us look to the margins, to the places often forgotten or abandoned. Let us continue to raise awareness of the most vulnerable, victims of war and violence, survivors of sexual harm, economic and climate refugees, the earth and her creatures, the exposed and exploited. Let us look to these places, listen deeply to what God is speaking through these persons and communities and spaces. And may we act in accordance with God's will to bring about healing and transformation for our world. Amen.